There's a goofy story that like I'll always remember. And I was in the control room by myself, but I don't remember what I was doing. I was in there and sitting there and then uh, Shatner comes in with a notepad right? and goes, uh, Joe, we're going to get dinner. I'm taking the order. <laughs> he said, now you've got, I've got two options here. I've got the Thai food or Baja Fresh. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Joe Costa a freelance engineer mixer in Nashville, Tennessee, originally from Dartmouth, Mass., my hometown too, Massachusetts. Oh, nice. A graduate of Berklee College of Music, Joe started out at Synchro Sound in Boston before moving to Nashville in 1993. Since then, he has worked in many great studios like Treasure Isle, House of David, and RCA Studio A, also Ben's Place. Or later Ben's place, right? Yeah, used to be, yeah. <laughs> and with many great artists, producers, and engineers through his career, like Tom Harding and Joe Baldrich, who's also been on episode 61, and also for more than a decade with Ben Folds. Joe's credits include Amanda Palmer, Elizabeth Cook, Lyle Lovett, Sarah Bareilles, Ben Folds, and William Shatner. Yes, you heard that right, the William Shatner, <laughs> among many, many others. Please welcome Joe Costa to Recording Studio Rockstars. Joe. Hey, Lidge. How you doing? Are you ready to rock, dude? I am. Yeah. Nice. So. It's I, awesome to have you here, man. This is the first time we've been hanging out in my studio, so welcome. It's awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. I feel like we're making... We're, I'll have to get into this some other time, but we're making an illegal podcast. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it? I know. Right. Well, I, I'll just leave you guessing, rock stars. I'll, I'll tell you that story down the road. Hang, a, hang a, a pirate flag up top, hoist it up. Yes, the pirate <laughs> podcast. Um, so, Joe, I like to ask our guests to tell us, you know, kind of how they got into recording and stuff, but I throw a little twist on it. What did starting out in recording smell like to you? <laughs> it smelled like oxide. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it smelled like pine, you know, Massachusetts, <laughs> all these pine forests, right? No, it was like coffee and coffee and shedding tape, probably. <laughs> coffee and shedding tape. Um, Rockstars, if you haven't had a chance to use tape, there's this wonderful smell when you're rewinding the tape machines and you put on a fresh reel of tape, and it's just it's the smell of oxide, I guess. And they all had like a different sort of smell to them, too. Like 456 had its own smell, and... It, was it an old with, school smell? I guess so, yeah. And if, if um, Did the smell have more mid-range? <laughs> probably. More crunch? And then when you'd be working with 499, and that would have a specific smell to it. But it all, you know, had that oxide sort of... <laughs> you know, we always say oxide, and it was probably actually just like the plastic substrates and the glue that they used probably. or something, you know? Yeah. I don't oh, even know. cigarette if... smoke, too. Everyone smoked back then. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Cigarette smoke and oxide and... Yeah, people used to smoke in the studio. In the studio, that's right. The gear used to get like brown and yellow and stuff. <laughs> that's probably why they made the gear brown and yellow. Like my my MCI tape machine actually is colored brown and it's yellow the, pretty much. It's the color of the 70s. Yeah. Well, you say that too. So, you know, doing a take on something like that's like, yeah, pretty brown. That's pretty cool. You know, it's like, right. or if it's got a mustache on it or something, it's like 
mustaches and the color brown kind of go with the 70s for some Interesting. reason. Interesting. So you guys, you're, when you're like identifying a killer take, it's got a mustache on it? It's got it? a mustache. Yeah, if you do some sort of jackass like um, uh, Wurlitzer. Careful what you say about beards and mustaches. <laughs> but it's cool though. See, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, if you do some sort of like, you know, jackass Wurlitzer part or a, you know, so it's like, oh yeah, you just put a mustache on that thing. Check them out. Nice. <laughs> Nice. The Nashville hipster. Yeah. Um, so let's see what else do I want to ask you. Tell us about starting out, man. So, you know, the smell of oxide, the smell of cigarettes. Yeah. I'm kind of glad we don't have to smell that in the studio anymore. Yeah, I know. And the coffee thing's good. I, you know, back then I didn't, I didn't really even drink coffee or I don't know how I survived just, um, you know, getting up early and doing sessions and stuff. No coffee. I'd make it for everyone, but I just, something I didn't drink. I, I somehow survived on it. So survived on not having it. But you're having coffee now, so you, you finally now. learned yeah. to enjoy coffee. <laughs> I, I learned that's uh, very helpful, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of funny because we have been making records long enough that at the beginning of our career, the, quote, coffee shop didn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, if it existed, it was more like a diner that had coffee. Sure. And then now, you know, there's a Starbucks on every corner and everybody just drinks coffee all the time. Right. And you can hang out and... I think it's Hags uh, said, uh, James Haggerty said, coffee's the daytime beer. (laughs) Social, you know, you get a little bit of a buzz. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's sort of funny too, because with coffee shops came, you know, these coffee shop scenes. So people are hanging out in coffee shops and particularly in Nashville, there are two places that, I mean, I'm not even going to say music stores. You'd think music stores would be a place, but really it's coffee shops and clubs are the two places where you're likely to socially interact with your peers, mm-hmm. like get business by running into people, you Absolutely. Know, get invited to do a record. Oh man, you are doing a record. Are you available? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's great. It's a nice little, especially if there's one in walking distance, you can kind of clear your head and. But do you go to coffee shops and clubs still, or do you just go to coffee shops these days? Man, equally the same, which means not much. I mean, I, yeah, I'll, I'll stop in every once in a while. Um, you know, when I ran into you, it was, I was just working around the corner. So it was kind of nice to have to take a break and walk to a coffee shop and kind of just clear your head. But, and I, you know, I go to clubs occasionally, just music venues occasionally, not as much as I used to, but if I get really excited about a specific band, I'll definitely go. Yeah. I hate to ask it like this, but do you find that when you go out to see live music, it tends to be an artist that you just worked with? Uh, or, or maybe about to, yeah. Or about to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of terrible. It's like, that's, we, you know, that's sort of our reason for going out. It's really fun for me when I occasionally break that habit and I go out and I see some music and it's brand new bands. In fact, more often than not, well, there might be somebody I know there that, that is a reason why I went out. But a lot of times I go out and then I randomly see stuff and I'm always like, I meet the coolest bands and coolest mm-hmm. musicians and I'm so glad I went. Absolutely. And I yeah. guess now, um, I don't know if I felt this way when I was younger, but now like I, I have no qualms about walking up to people, introducing myself, you know, starting a conversation and telling them I thought they were great. Sure. You know? Oh, and they probably want, you know, it's probably nice to hear that. I mean, so it gets, it's good, positive feedback. So, you know, that's always a good thing. We'll see. I, I can't, I can't think of any examples where it immediately led to a record, but I'm sure there are some in there. But you know, it's, yeah, I mean, that, that stuff can always happen. All right. So tell us about recording in... Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I started uh, going to school at Berkeley College of Music. And did and you go for the recording program I or did. For, for playing an instrument? Yeah. Well, I, I'm a drummer as well. And I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm assuming it's the same. I, I've heard, I haven't been there forever and I, I've heard it's just, they've kind of taken over all of Back Bay 
It's just like so much right spread buildings out. and this and that. And at the time, and it may still be the same now, but you had to, you know, a drummer, I had my basic classes that I was taking and then they called it an MP&E, music production and engineering program. But you had to apply to it and go for an interview. They, they just didn't want people going like, yeah, I think I'll do this. And then it'd be like slammed with a, a ton of people that didn't care. So right. you had to have an interview, you had to write an essay, you had to do all this stuff. So so after the first year, I, I tried that and got in. And so- uh, and they, sh- they should have made you record your, you know, yeah, no, spoken I, word no, and nothing. send it in yeah, or something. Just like, no, nothing about any, and I really knew nothing about anything, which was, you know, it, uh, Berkeley was great for that. They gave me some, a bit of a basis of, um, you know, and you did a lot of in-depth things, but, you know, it was a basis of learning. And, and the way I explain it is I'm glad I had a little bit of a leg up, but the majority of the stuff I learned was once I got out and started working with people. Yeah. I mean, you know, that stuff, I, I, I feel very thankful that I went through that, but yeah, it's just like, I'm glad that, um, you know, the way I thought about it was, I'm sure I'm going to go. And it was a different time period too. There was, it was mostly studios and, um, I figured like, well, I'm sure I'm going to just get out of here and start making coffee for people and emptying trash. And I mean, I had no illusions. I was like, that's, but at least I have some knowledge in my head. If someone asks me something, I can maybe be helpful. Right. So this is, um, late eighties. This would have been, yeah, I started in 89 graduated in 93 and I, I started an internship over There was a studio called synchro sound over on Newbury street, which is not, it's sad. It, it had been, it used to be called intermedia sound before that. And I think, I think dream on was recorded there. Really? Yeah. And I know the cars owned the studio for a while. Wow. And I don't know if they made their records there, but they owned, they owned the studio. And then, um, there was, uh, some other people had owned it when I started working there and it was a really cool studio that they, they had, um, you know, an A room upstairs, they had a B room downstairs. And then downstairs, there was also this room at the end they used to call the pit. And it was basically, they called it the pit because if you were in the A room and you walked out past the A room, there were sliding glass doors and there was a, a spiral staircase that went down into this thing. And it was very live. Nice. And, you see the spiral stairs right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I remember getting, you know, Every anytime we'd put drums in the pit, I remember my my knees would be killing me because you'd be up and down, up and down, up and down, up Carrying and down. Carrying the you, drums too. Yeah, drums and you know microphones and cables and this and that. But then that B room downstairs was also attached. You you could tie into that. But um, but yeah. So I, I worked there. I started as an intern, and the first day I interned, I remember I stayed there all day. I was changing light bulbs. I was doing this and this and this. And I don't think they were said like, Hey, you can be an intern. I think they said, well, let's just, why don't you hang out today? And so I just kind of did everything. And the studio manager at the time, Gretchen, Gretchen drowns her name. She, uh, she said, okay, okay, okay. I think you got the internship. You know, you're good. Um, there was an engineer that came in that was doing a band later that night. And he happened to say, Hey, would you assist me on this band? Nice. Great. So I stayed there like all night, like five in the morning, you know, and, and, um, worked with him. And he, I remember him saying, you know, the, um, this is the first day. I remember saying like, you know, the owners listen to me, blah, blah, blah. I do a lot of sessions here. And he was like a a guy that worked a lot of sessions there. And he, uh, he said, I really want you to assist me all the time. This is going to be great. You know, you seem to know, uh, you know, it's nice to know that, you know, what microphones I'm asking for and this and that. And I went home thinking, man, this is going to be great. Well, a week later he was in jail. The owner was in jail. No, the guy, the guy who, oh, the, the guy who had said all that. Yeah. Oh no. And he never came back. So it was like, I, so well, maybe didn't... he wanted you to assist him in jail. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but he, um, so that, yeah, so that was that. So 
But I stayed as a, as a as an intern, and I also became like a weekend manager for a little while, and which was an interesting experience. I didn't care. I didn't care for that. Yeah, but that probably opened your eyes to elements of running a studio that are terribly important mm-hmm. and not all that exciting necessarily. Not they're not about putting a microphone and getting a sound up. Oh, it was yeah, it was stuff like I'd be there on the weekend, and um, I remember one time there was um, there was a session, but the console went down. And I had to call the tech guy and he couldn't fix it. So the, the clients that were in there, you know, they couldn't do their session. So they, they wanted their deposit back. Well, I didn't have access to the safe and they were like really adamant. And I was like, man, if you can just wait till Monday, you're going to, you're definitely going to, you know, I just can't get to it. And they just wouldn't leave. So I had to call someone who had a key, you know, and they, they eventually came in and gave them their deposit back. And in the interim, I lost the studio key. And I, cause I think cause I put it down and they took the studio key. Oh no. So it was like a nightmare, you know, and, and, uh, owners weren't happy about it. And so, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> well, so let me jump to a question about that. Cause yeah. deposits dealing with money, it's a fact of life when you're doing recording for work, for a business sure. and a livelihood. Sure. What have you learned about the importance of interacting with clients around money having a deposit, returning a deposit, you know, when things don't go right, what have you learned about the best way to resolve things with clients? I, you know what, I've luckily not had to do anything like collect deposits. It's usually, I'm usually working for someone that I know and I know I'm going to get paid either after the session or it's not going to take, you know, it's going to take a couple of weeks or something like that. I've not been in the position of, you know, I don't own my own studio or anything. So I haven't had to worry about collecting deposits and returning them and, and all that stuff. And I know sometimes people get like something about like half up front and all that. I've just never, I've never had to do that. And I think in all the time, knock on wood, I think I only got stiffed once and I was an assistant and both the engineer and I got stiffed. And that was a long time ago. I can't even remember the project. Um, and it wasn't, and it wasn't, even it wasn't with friends. No. And it was a day or two. It wasn't even anything that maybe it was one day. Like, yeah, I just, I don't even remember it. So, you know, knock on wood. There's a lot of wood on this console. Well, it sounds like the solution yeah. is kind of just like, you know, don't work with a bunch of strangers, work with people that you trust. And Absolutely. then and they just don't even have to worry about it. That's right. Yeah. That, if you, that's if, good if advice you, too. If you can do that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just have to take whatever you can take and, and um, I may have to, you know, there may be situations coming up where I may have to, I don't know who this person is. I, I may have to say, well, you're going to have to pay me this much up front, And then before I give you anything usable, you'll have to pay me the rest. I, I mean, I just haven't, luckily I haven't had to do that yet, mm-hmm. but I know d- people have to deal with that a lot of times. Okay, cool. Yeah. So um, tell us about uh, moving to Nashville. Oh, cool. So yeah, moved to Nashville in 1993 and I kind of just started again. I mean, I, I was fortunate to be a staff engineer for like a year and a half at Synchro Sound and I came here to Nashville and I thought, well, I'm just going to go to a couple studios and just see what's up. And why'd you come to Nashville? I mean, like when you got out of Berkeley, was Boston a music city to you or was it, I didn't, you know, did you discover that Nashville was a music city? You know, I just wanted to get out of Boston and I I do like Boston, but you know, I think four years after, after living there four years and you know, I got tired of riding subways and I got tired of just the energy and it's not a, it's not a cut in Boston. I love it. It's just, I think after four years I was ready for a change. And, um, so New York wasn't for me and you wanted a little country living. Well, yeah, it was weird because I, I figured, well, it's going to be one of these three places in New York. You know, I, I was like, well, it's just more in, a more intense Boston. I, and maybe someday I don't want to do that. I went to LA to visit that interesting, but I didn't really connect with it. And then I visited Nashville and I thought, man, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, I was walking up and down 
Music Row at the time. And I said, man, all these little houses are, are businesses and they're, these studios are cool. And, you know, and especially when I, I ended up moving here and I went to House of David, which is one of my favorite places. It's, it was like, wow, look at this is a house. This is, how cool is this? And it sounds cool. Um, you know, I actually never got to see inside of House of David. I, I oh, need, you need to. I know I need to. And um, it's really great. It's not too late. No. And, but, but I've heard all sorts of magnificent stories about it. Tell it, share with us a cool story about it. I'm, I know there's some really interesting ones that maybe have something to do with Elvis too. Yeah. Um, and of course, David Briggs, there's three David Briggs in the music industry. One of them passed away. And I think there's an Australian David Briggs. I heard they were all sitting at a table one day. And then there's David Briggs, who was Elvis's music director. Now, David, that David Briggs owns House of David. And he was part of the Muscle Shoals, the first Muscle Shoals group with Norbert Putnam and all that stuff. And okay, then he played cool. with Elvis. And he's an amazing piano player, a wonderful guy, has lots of stories. And so there's a door in House of David on the floor. Back then, we used to have a... Uh, one of those giant, it, these, the baffles that are there, are huge, they need like two, three people to move them, but they're really, they isolate really well. And one of them just sat over it the whole time because that's where we used to put the acoustic guitar player. And yeah, there's a door on the floor with a ring. And what happens is when you lift it, it goes, it's, um, we used to call it the trap door, the Elvis door. It goes down to, uh, the stairs go down to the garage. Now the story is that was built for Elvis because people would follow Elvis. He'd be in his car and they'd have to, I guess, throw decoys around and stuff to, to but he would be able to drive into the garage, close the door, go up into the studio. Now wow. you'd have to ask David, I don't know. I'm unclear if he, I think that was built for Elvis, but I don't know if he passed away before he actually came to work yeah, there. Yeah. So that's a little. Doesn't um, harm the story one no, bit. And it, no, it's, not it's, one bit. It's, it's cool. It's a real vibey place. It's got a cream colored API that used to be in record one. It used to belong to Val Garay. So it's, it's cream colored within the, in the, all the numbers and like the indents are all blue. Oh, cool. It's really cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a and cool don't you guys have a great API console over there too? Of, was at at uh, RCA or? Oh, I'm sorry. At um, House of David. Yeah. Was that was that, that's, yeah, that API. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. And it's still there and it's, it, it sounds beautiful. It's really cool. But that was probably, you just probably just said, we had an API console. And then I said, did you have an API console? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, rock stars. Um, I was sort of like still lost in that vision of Elvis coming up <laughs> through the stairs, which is so, so cool. And there's also cool, um, not a lot of people know this too, but if you, if you go in house of David, there's a spiral staircase that goes downstairs. And I guess, you know, way before I started working there, there was a, uh, that staircase didn't exist and that was the bathroom. So as you're going down the stairs, you can see little like little scribbles on the, on the wallpaper of like oh really pen, just like pen graffiti scribbles. and stuff yeah like little pen scribbles of things you know it's like That's oh funny. that was the bathroom okay you know it's <laughs> like um like but yeah that. that that was a place that I started going around and um and that was if I recall correctly Richard McLaurin sort of rebuilt a bunch of stuff over there at one yeah, point he, right yeah that was like the age of Richard when I when I started working there uh, there was a, a studio manager named Mike Corbett and Tom Hitchcock was kind of like the main engineer there he's passed away and I started kind of working with them. Years later, Rich, Richard McLaurin did a lot of stuff out of there and he brought in a lot of gear. And so he had like, I don't know, you know, I don't know how long he was there. I want to say maybe 10 years, eight years or something. And then you know, when Richard left, I thought, I thought the studio was like, I, I don't know why I thought David sold the console and closed the studio. Like I had no idea. And then my friend, Mike Davis is now managing it. And he said, oh yeah, we're open. The console's still there. I said, whoa, I didn't, had no idea. That's cool. So I did, um. I did a session there maybe a year ago or something and it was great, man. It's just, it's just very, 
It's very cool. It's one of those studios where, as we as will say, like the comet passes over, you know, like things just kind of happen. It's like, well, I don't know how that happened, but that's amazing. Like that performance is amazing. It sounds kind of weird, but cool. Like it, things just sort of it's like Elvis kind of blesses you every, every once in a while. We'll say like, you know, but yeah, it was that place. And, and, um, and uh, I, Elvis puts a mustache on he it. He does. Yeah. He might have a mustache or two. I'll have to do an interview over there and I'll go check out the studio. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Mike Davis and, um, yeah, talk to Mike and I, I can get you with Mike. Um, well, so let me jump forward some more and um, let's take you to RCA Studio A yeah. as well, which is where you spent a lot of time working with Ben Folds. Right? Yeah. Tell us about your your time with Ben Folds. Well, that, you know, that was a studio called Havelina and it would, you know, they used to call it the big pig because it was just a, I don't know, Havelina is a pig and it's, and that's massive. The But that was a studio that this would have been maybe 2002 and that's a studio that I had never been in. So I'd always heard about it, but I'd never never been in it. And John Painter is a mutual friend of Ben and and me. And I was working with Joe Baldridge right around that time. And I, I got a phone call from John Painter saying, Hey, I'm, I've been engineering a lot for Ben. He's, he's got the old Havelina and um, you may want to kind of come over and I'm not gonna be able to engineer a lot for him. He may need somebody. Right. I thought, Oh, that's kind of cool. And went and met Ben and started engineering stuff. And I kind of just started engineering stuff for him for like I don't know, since, you know, 12 or 14, 16, whenever it was. Well, Havelina Studio A, Mm -hmm. Ben's Place, is a pretty remarkable studio. Can you describe it to the rock stars? You can throw like a, you can throw a football in there. It's a very large room, but it's not very live. It was supposed to be kind of a compliment to the B room next door, but the B room came first and they opened RCA Studio A and it was meant to be like a big orchestral type room. Yeah. And um, so you could fit an entire orchestra. Yeah. And then later on, in the studio's life, they put up a couple ISO booths, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great big room. And a lot of times with bands, I would just kind of be in a, you know, half the space, maybe a third of the space, just having everyone near because there's so much room. Yeah. But the cool thing is, you know, you hit drums in there and it totally doesn't, it kind of just dissipates in a cool way. It's really pretty sounding. Yeah. So the, it's got a unique ceiling. Can you describe what's going on up in the, yeah, the ceiling's the got part? all these, um, these kind of like tin chandeliers that have etchings in them. And I don't, really don't know the story about that. I think I don't, whenever they did that, that they just had a bunch of people kind of etch stuff in there. Some of some things say like peace and this and that. And some things, you know, there's some swears up in there and <laughs> so some blue phrases, you know. And isn't and, there like a curving blue or cloud oh, thing oh, up there? A, that, you know, there's a curving, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the technique that it's, but it's a curved kind of on all the sides of the walls. It's, it's um, oh boy, I wish I could remember the name of it, but they, they're like these half curves that, and, you know, if you do a search on online for RCA Studio A or Grand Victor Sound is what we, they called it for a while when Ben had it, um, you can see that. It's just really cool. All right, uh, cool. Well, we'll include links to that in the show notes, Rockstars, and uh, see if we can put some images of it in there, too, because it really is a magnificent space. And yeah. There's something cool where you feel like you could just set up an entire band standing around, you know, in a huddle or something and... Like it, it would be cool. It'd be fine. You could and have amps, you could have whatever you want there. Right. And that's the first time I really enjoyed listening to a mic in Omni directional. <laughs> really? Wow. The, the room just sounded so good. I remember we would have something in Omni and maybe to do some group backgrounds or something. And you just, you would just hear, you know, people are milling around before you do a take, you bring the mic up and stuff like that. And just the sound of the room of people in the distance is kind of talking and stuff. It's like, Whoa. It's focused Say, or something. Hey, I like right? Omni sound. I, I, I like uh, Omni directional now. Why? Why is that? Well, the room sounds great. Imagine that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Interesting. Have you ever recorded outside with an Omni? Like out in the... Yeah, just like outside, no walls at all? No. Kind of thing? 
I wonder if that would be similar at all. I wonder if it would sound similar or like a or location different. recording, like maybe yeah. a space domini. Yeah, I imagine that's probably another you place should, where you, you should might try really it out like here. It. We should. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, I like to ask guests to share an inspirational quote as we launch the podcast. You got anything you want to share with us that sort of get us excited about hitting the studio? Yeah, I um, you know, I only saw I only saw one episode of that series, uh, Soundbreaking. I need to see the rest of them, but the episode I did see opened with Don was, and he, this, I had to, I had to watch him and listen to this over and over again because it hit me so hard. So this is, this is exactly what he said. So this is a quote. He said, in the studio, speakers are always situated across the back of the board and there's like a speaker line and really gifted people can jump across that line. And I just kind of like went, oh my God. And I had to rewind it over and over again because not only is it so true, and he put it in such a great way, but for years I had always noticed working with a great vocalist, it, it always happened within a session. Like, um, and you know, you're, you're doing vocals with someone who's a really cool, cool vocalist, great artist and stuff. And um, maybe they're just trying to figure the song out and all that stuff. And, and so you may have like three or four takes where it's like, yeah, that's good. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. That's probably usable. That's cool. You know? And, and at some point it's like the, the vocalist artist, in the speakers looks you directly in the eye and jumps up in three dimensional in front of that line. And I never thought of it as a line. I thought of it just as like, Oh, you're now jumping out of the speakers. Now it's on now. Now, now we're getting some good takes and it's like, they kind of come alive and just engage you. Whereas yeah. the other takes in, in mentally, when I'm looking at the speakers, it's almost like they're, they're kind of like looking down and kind of, you know, uh, even though everything might sound good and everything cool, but there's a one point where all of a sudden it just goes click they look up at you in the speakers and all of a sudden they jump in front and it's like, now you're coming out of the speakers. That's really interesting. So yeah. two things come to mind about that. One is that there is a thing where you can, you can talk about aiming the mic at different parts of a face and all that, mm -hmm. but there is, there's like an energy that can come from a vocalist. Hopefully I'm doing it right this second on this mic <laughs> where it's like, you're just projecting your energy into the mic or through the mic. Sure. And it's almost like you can, sound check a mic without headphones on sometimes you stand in front of it and you just you know you can i know it sounds crazy but when you're communicating it's it's right it's like you're saying you're sort of communicating through the microphone right. through the speakers and then on the other side as the engineer it's also that time in the takes where for those first takes you're thinking about what you're supposed to be doing to the sound, mm -hmm. right? As the engineer, you're like, oh, should I adjust that compressor? Oh, should I adjust that EQ? Maybe mm -hmm. I'm doing it wrong, you know? And then all of a sudden something happens and it's just right. And you're no longer thinking about adjusting things and trying to control it. You're now just observing, you're listening. Right. And, and you're engaged by the performance. And so what I always wonder about is, when you're recording, and this particularly if you're producing, you know, you're having to make decisions and give feedback, and you experience that vocal performance, that one take that engages you, what does that mean in the process? Does that mean we go, oh, that was great. That was really great. Why don't we do another one? Or does that mean we go, that was great. Should we try and beat that one and have a safety? Or does that mean we go, I was just engaged listening. That's kind of the goal of what I'm doing when I'm recording. Mm -hmm. So we're there. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways you can do it. I think the way I would probably do it is, uh, you know, you just get excited about that and you hold on to it and you make a note about it. Maybe, maybe there's uh, there's another take that goes beyond that, and then you, you know you've you've seen it where all of a sudden it's just like, oh, it just fell off. 
That's it. Yeah. Like you're on the like wrong side of the, the hill spirit, now. The spirit guides have have stopped communicating. You know, whatever it is. Um, and <laughs> the um, mustache is drooping. The mustache is shaved. Yeah, it's not happening anymore. And then you know, it's like, man, that one just came alive. But but you know, we've always. I, I used to say that to Ben all the time. You know, it's like, man, after the first few takes, that take four, man, you started coming out of the speakers. That's just the way I put it. Like, because that's the way it felt. Like now you're you're actually coming out of the speakers instead of just having a performance. Yeah. And when I, when I heard Don was say that, I was like, that's exactly what I've been experiencing. He just said it in a cooler way, you know? Yeah. So here's another question for you. You've had the experience of working with artists for the first time. You've also had the experience of working with an artist over a long period of time. What's the difference in recording vocals for you? And I think vocals is the one to talk about because it's so, there's so much personality in it, mm -hmm. it's, you know? The curtain is is drawn back. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference between that those two experiences, and how do you how do you navigate that? Like, do you have a better sense of when you're there and when you're not there when you're working with somebody you worked with forever versus somebody who's brand new? Sometimes I notice like like I don't know how to tell a, a vocalist if I don't know if they're singing their best yet if I've never worked with them. Yeah, that's tough. It's usually I'm usually just kind of hanging on the, what the producer is going to maybe do with them. You know, a lot of times it's most of the time there's a producer in the room and they're, they may, they'll probably know that. And I don't know that, or, or it could be someone for the first time and I'll let them, them kind of deal with that. But that is a good question because when you work with somebody for a while, you know, what will eventually happen. Yeah. Or you know, At some point, you know, there's a, there's a point to, there's a curve that you can potentially get to at some point because you know, you've worked with them before. Right? Or like something comes out of uh, through the mic and the speakers and you're like, Ooh, that's not really you yet. Like that doesn't sound, something's off. Right. And that's just being familiar with a person yeah. in, in, in there. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I've worked with new people and a lot of times it has been, there's just been somebody there producing it and they're like, they may have the same thing too. It's like, well, I don't know if we have it yet. Or I wonder if they can do that better or whatever. Yeah. That's always with someone, someone new. It's interesting. Yeah. Or yeah. the times where you're engineering, where you, somebody sings and you're like, oh, that sounds pretty great. And then the producer's like, yeah, no, it's, I guess the, uh, you know, the, uh, allergies are kind of, I can kind of hear it in your voice and something else. And you're like, Oh shit, what do I know? You yeah. Know? I know it's like, it's like, it, it hits you for some reason. We, we did that with, uh, that's an interesting thing that we, we did an EP for Sarah Borellis and she was doing a piano vocal and this one song and she did this one take and it was just like, there was three of us in the control room. We were like, oh my man, that's like, wow. Yeah. You know, she came in and listened to it. She's like, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good. We we're like, are, we, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? So she went and did another one and it was technically, you know, air quotes, more perfect. Right. And she said, yeah, I'd like that one better. And the three of us were like, I don't know. I don't know. See, that's that thing. It wasn't, it's, it's like, right? that, it didn't feel vulnerable. It just felt like a kind of a good performance. Vulnerable. That's the word I was looking for before. Yeah. And um, I wasn't willing to be vulnerable enough to admit that I couldn't think of vulnerable. That's right. But she, yeah. And she liked that one for some reason. And then I think Ben might've talked her out of it. The other one, and the other one was just so much cool. I had like this emotion that came out and she still sounded amazing. And, but for some reason she went to fix her. Well, I understand yeah. people want to fix their mistakes, but, and they, they didn't even sound like mistakes to me, but, and, uh, yeah, that, that newer one that she did was just like, it kind of covered the things that she wanted to address, but it just didn't, uh, to me, it didn't deliver the emotion. Yeah. You know? And so then that begs another tough question, which is in that moment where you guys listened to a vulnerable take that had emotion followed by another take that got some things more right, mm -hmm. you know, are we even capable of judging the second take 
fairly at that time, you know, cause it's like, we're already, lo- we're, our opinions already decided. We love that first it's thing. Tough. And it's, it's really it's tricky, tough, you know, and it, and it, and it's extra tough because it wasn't like, yeah, this one's vibey, but it's just, yeah, performance wise, it's not great. And the other one, it's like, they were both great performances. It's just for some reason she didn't care for the first one, but that's the one that really connected. Yeah. So, and it's, it, yeah, it's extra difficult when they're two great performances, <laughs> but yeah. one of them obviously will just, you know, pulls some strings in you and the other one just didn't kind of just went by, you know? Yeah. That's, I've learned that the crappiest part about comping things is when they're all great. And then the best part about that is you, once you realize that you can go, Oh shit, I can stop worrying about it. They're all great. I can just pick any one of them. It's going to be fine. Pick one that, yeah. And you, and you kind of just try not to overthink it and, and, and it's like, well, man, that's making me feel like it's hitting something for, I don't know what it is, but boom, it's going to be in the comp. Yeah. You know, it's just, and try to just go, go with it that way. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, so let's, um, I also like to ask for stories about like an important failure. You, you've done a lot of great stuff in your career, um, which we're going to keep talking about. We got a lot of good questions that I get to Ooh, here, cool. but you know, you've had a lot of successes, but maybe not everything's been roses and perfect takes. Do you have any important failures you want to share with us? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm probably more like a, uh, like a big learning moment or something like that, but, uh, Luckily, I never like erased anything, which, you know, a lot of people have the story like, oh, I erased a take or I erased this. Now, luckily, I never, unless I I erased my, a platinum double album. Yeah. Unless, unless, like, unless I'm not thinking properly, I, I don't think I've done that. But in my early, in my early uh, assisting days, I was working, it was like one night and it was this songwriter from the 60s, fairly famous songwriter. And um, he came in to do something and he was pretty cool all day. He was a nice guy, but it, it kind of threw me because at the end of the day, he just kind of got weird. I think we started figuring out he was just taking a lot of pills and stuff. He just wasn't right. You know, he wasn't very stable, but I still learned a good lesson from it. Um, we finished the, the tracking and he, it was basically like one of those things where like, Hey, look, we're going to do a quick rough mix and get out of here. Well, that rough mix turned into like four hours of just like, you know, the engineer trying to, and, and then he wants, to, he wanted the engineer to mix on the monitor section only. You know, the API and the course that monitor sections on it, on that API was all the way over to the left and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't really hear and all that stuff. So that's going on and on and on. And I'm manning a quarter inch machine and the engineer and I at that time had a, like a really good rapport, cool dude. And so we're getting towards the end of that reel and we're, we keep doing these takes and takes and takes and takes. And I hadn't planned on, you know, multiple reels. It was going to be like, let's do a rough mix and be out of here. So we kept going and going and going. I started getting to the end of that reel. And I just happened to say to the engineer, because we were such, you know, we were buds and stuff. I was like, hey, man, what do you think? Should I just grab another reel from downstairs? It looks like I'm, I'm going to get low if we keep. And he was about to answer. And the songwriter, who I guess was producing this thing, he just lost his mind and started yelling at me. He was like, don't ask him that. I said, well, what? <laughs> Why? He goes, you should know how much time's left on that. You should know your job. You shouldn't be asking him that question. You shouldn't be, you know, is this and this. And he was like berating me. And this guy had been cool all day. And he just flipped, you know? So of course I wasn't prepared for, you know, a guy being a, a weirdo all day. You know, I might've been a little, well, let's say it, let's say it was a douchebag. Kind of was. Yeah. I don't even use that expression, <laughs> but it seems fitting. And he, he lost it, man. And you know, the engineer had to calm him down and stuff. So I had to go cool off downstairs. You know, I was really upset and all that. But when I look back on it now, he was absolutely right. I should have known as that was going down, I should have, you know, ran downstairs and grabbed, you know, another, another reel and been ready for it. So in that sense, he was correct. Yeah. And it, it, it needed, you know, a guy with a unstable personality to, to, <laughs> to yell it at me. But it's like, you know what, you know, I should, I shouldn't be asking him that I should be, I should, I should have that in my pocket. I should, should be ready to go. You know, I shouldn't have to 
you know, worry about that. He was right. So what you're saying now is you and I, like as we become more experienced engineers and we become mentors to people who are learning, um, we have to be willing to take on the the role of unstable douchebag to be truly helpful <laughs> to those around us who need a good learning experience. I don't know about that. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty extreme and I'm not even doing it justice. I mean, it was just kind of like, it was like, Whoa, what's wrong with this guy? You know? <laughs> But yeah, but you know, you look back at it, it's like, yeah, he, you know, he was absolutely right. And he, he came from a time where it was just way old school and that's what you, you know, yeah. Yeah. so, um, yeah, I would never scream at someone to do that. I would just, you know, <laughs> I, I won't name names, but I heard a great story once about, um, an experienced producer engineers working with an assistant at another studio. And, um, the assistant was same thing. He was supposed to have the tape reels ready to go. And I think they were all supposed to be, which way is it? Would it be tails out, right? Mm -hmm. Fresh reels of tape tails out mm -hmm. so that you could just pop it on and keep recording and you wouldn't have to rewind. Yeah. And he had forgotten to do that or something. He got yelled at by the, yeah. the producer, the engineer was like, you're ruining the session. Well, that's a little, was, little, it was extreme. a little extreme. Yeah. But you know, a little, little dramatic. <laughs> it stuck long enough to stay with the assistant, and they get retold to us later on in next session. Right. But you know, honestly, it's one of the things I absolutely love about what we do. Yeah. That there, it's so rife with stories like mm -hmm. that. It's just ridiculous, great, funny, <laughs> sad, crazy, whatever they are. I just one of the things. It's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was just, you know, I kind of wish that I, you know, could just pull back the curtain and, you know, it was one of these places where everybody could name drop and tell the really terrible <laughs> stories that you hear in the studio. But sorry, rock stars, you're going to have to get some, they're a little more clean than that. And uh, you, yeah. once you're in the studio, you'll get all the really, really nitty gritty right. stories or come here for a special session and we'll That's tell right. them, we'll, we'll, we'll let it out, the cats out of the bag. So tell us about a, like an important kind of aha moment for you or something that became a moment where you felt like, you know, it was all coming together, moment of success, for example. Hmm. Well, you know, like starting as a young engineer, assistant and all that, and especially as an assistant and you start doing, you know, you start firsting on some sessions, maybe with some local bands and things like that. You know, sometimes you go through a time period like, man, you know, the band sounds pretty cool. The sounds are cool. Why is this not working? You know, it, it seems cool. You know, especially you're trying to mix it. It's like, why is this a struggle? Why is this a this and that and all that? And it's probably going to sound completely like, well, yeah, of course. But, you know, it took me uh, and it's a few, you know, a bunch of different sessions, especially like ones back to back that were kind of opposite. If the musicians are awesome and the arrangements are great, your job is way easier. I mean, like way easier. It's, what about the song? It helps if the song's really good it helps, too. It helps if the song's cool. But like in Sonic Land, yeah, it's just like, I was doing a session where you know, I was working and the drummer was a great drummer. I mean, he's like awesome drummer, but the way he played, you know, the tone was just weird, you know? And, and I was just kind of, as, as we were working on some stuff, I kind of was struggling with it. You know, it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of like, feel small and I don't know why. And I turned my back to talk to somebody or something like that. And all of a sudden the drum sounded phenomenal. I went, Whoa, there you go. And it was someone else sat in on the, sat in on the drums to show, to demonstrate a part. And I was like, uh, oh, the, the touch is completely different. Same drums, same sound. That yeah. sounded amazing. Yeah. Same thing with, you know, people that play bass or whatever. You, you can get a bass player that's really good, but the way their fingers are and stuff, it might be kind of hard in a mix, but some people just, the way they, the fingers, it's like it pops out in the mix. You don't have to do anything to it. Yeah. There've been times where, and, and Ben's really great about this. He's, he's all about arranging. Or the piano too, right? Yeah. And he'll like, you know, a lot of times he'd be his own rhythm section. So he'd put down, sometimes he'd put down piano and then drums and then bass. Oh, Ben would. Ben would. Yeah. Oh, cool. I didn't like know some he was of those early EPs that I worked like that. on him. He, he's an amazing 
I think it, I think drums was that was his first instrument. He went to Miami uh, University of Miami for percussion. And, oh, no kidding! Yeah, wow. and he's a great bass player too. So he would go around in circles, and he'd come. He's like, oh, you know what? Let me the piano. He call himself by you know the piano player is uh, being a jackass. Let me you know not be so so much on that and you know bass. And he he work his way around, and um, we get something, and then he'd be like, you know what? I don't need to be doing that in the left hand. Plus it's going to make you, it's going to make it a little easier for you to mix too. Cause that arrangement. And so he'd scale this arrangement down to where he liked it. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh man, I'm not chasing the faders anymore either. Right. And I did hear a cool story um, with an like a old school engineer. I'm trying to remember his name, but it was that sort of thing where he had the band. It was probably might've been in the seventies or sixties or something like that. And he, he the, the session guys are all working, working through the song and someone was hanging out with him saying like, I can't wait to see what you do to make this all kind of, you know, together and stuff. And he said, okay, watch. And it was about 10 minutes later. He hadn't done anything. He's like, what did you do? He said, they just figured their parts out. <laughs> I mean, it really like snapped into position, yeah. you know? So to me, that's a big, and so, you know, I clue into that a lot now. It's like, especially on tracking, it's like, usually if you're working with a band, usually with session guys and all that, they usually sort themselves out and it's really awesome. You don't have to, yeah. anything, but, uh, but like working with bands and stuff, it's like, I've really clued into that now. It's like, okay, this is like not Technically, it's kind of cool, like, but why am I chasing everything around? It's like, maybe if we simplify, oh, it's just as cool and now it actually sounds cool. Like, you know, it's just, it, it really makes a huge difference. It's a funny thing because you talk about session musicians, they're used to this. They know they're going to come in, mess it up a little bit and then figure it out. And mm -hmm. they know how to listen to each other and communicate. Yeah. And the egos go, you know, they don't yeah. come to the session. Bands might have a thing that's cool, but they don't necessarily have that experience of adjusting on the fly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as an engineer or producer, you can find yourself having to listen acutely and like try and understand some things that are maybe broken and readdress those and have them redial it in. Yeah. And that's, that's actually a fun thing to do. It's hard to do. Sometimes it, you're finding you're having to do it on the session when it should have been done on the pre-production, right. you know? Right. Um, but sometimes you don't know if you're not, if you're not doing pre-production in a studio, sometimes you don't know like, oh, now that's coming through speakers. Well, that that that's kind of not happening. So let's try something else. But, yeah, exactly. But yeah, exactly. And, that's, and that's, you know, you can talk about that for like just arrangement wise, not happen or it doesn't feel right. Or, but even sonically, it's like when things start to lock, it's like, Oh, you know, I've worked with bands where it's like the parts technically cool, but, it's but why are the drums and bass me. not, why am I having a nightmare trying to mix this? Like I can't get the low end right. Why is this, you know, and then you'd work with somebody else like a week later and it was just like, you know, completely different thing, but it's like, Oh, now the fader, I just throw the faders up and kind of like in, five different ways and it's all cool because yeah. it's just it all hangs together because their tone is better and they, the parts are right they, yeah. their parts are better and it's really remarkable that a drum set would be that way you know yeah you can kind of think about it for guitars and bass and stuff like that but you're like but a drum you're just hitting it with a stick but man it really just like it adds up there's a resonance to the tone that happens when it's done right and the way you hit it and you know some people will think that you know if you hit really hard it's awesome but sometimes it just you know the head's kind of fold in and everything sounds small. Some people kind of play too quiet or they, yeah, the thing is, is like with drummers, old school drummers, you know, back, back then, you know, they may, maybe had one mic to mic the drum kit, maybe two, but they didn't play like jackasses and they, they mixed themselves when they play. Right. So you can't, you could use one mic or two mics because you're going to pick up this mixed, beautiful drum. And the best drummers are the ones who mix one, mix themselves when they play, you know, and that's most, most drummers I know do that. You know, yeah. you can, you can get away with, you know, minimal miking at that point because it's like, well, I mean, they're not like bashing on cymbals and barely hitting the snare drum. You know, you're coming up, learning stuff. A lot of the bands would kind of do that. And you're like, man, there's cymbals and hi-hat everywhere. What the? Have you noticed mm -hmm. yourself becoming a better musician from making records with other people who are great musicians? Just 
because yeah. you, you begin to understand what would work. Absolutely. And as a drummer, I don't play much anymore, but we did, um, I co-produced an album with my friend, Jared Reynolds. It was the Eve Barsley album. Eve Barsley is Clem Snide. And we ended up, Jared came on board and, and he's a bass player. He used to play with Ben Folds. And he said, well, why don't we just, the three of us just cut stuff. Like, let's try, you know. So I went out and played drums. He just, I showed him how to hit record on Pro Tools. And, but after recording a lot of people, I, I really started mixing myself when I played. Yeah. So, and it, Cause I was like, Hey, this is going to make my life easier. Let me, let me make my life easier. So I really started playing that way and it was kind of easy to, to, to deal with myself yeah. in that sense. You well, know? it's also interesting because the more you put yourself out on a microphone with an instrument, the better you understand how the, just the levels and the mix and what's in the headphones affects your ability mm -hmm. to play an instrument out there. Yeah. So I, th I find that's really enlightening and definitely a good thing to do. It is. Yeah. And you start, you start listening for things that maybe you didn't listen for before. Yeah. Sometimes you just need a mic to be way up loud, not because you want to be too loud in the mix, but because it allows you to blend yourself in. Right. You know, instruments that I find it's helpful to have some volume on. Yeah. Overheads on a drums where you can kind of hear the sound of the kit and begin mm -hmm. to feel that out. An acoustic guitar, if you're playing an acoustic guitar overdub. You don't feel it in the headphones and it, you can't play at that same natural volume unless sometimes it's up pretty hot in mm -hmm. headphones, you know, yeah, stuff like that. Oddly enough, sometimes it's the reverse with the vocal. Sometimes I've seen a lot of vocalists do a much better take and then they go, oh yeah, hey, can you bring my, bring my vocals way up? I couldn't hear myself. And you're like... Hmm, interesting, because you just nailed that take on that first pass right, right there, you know? Right, and then you have vocalists that eat the vocals up so loud in their headphones, every time they take the headphones off, you get feedback. Yeah. It's like, how are you, why are you listening <laughs> to yourself that loud? <laughs> All right, so let's jump into some more questions here. Um, you spent a lot of time working with Ben Folds. Uh -huh. What was it like working with Ben? Why do you think you guys clicked? And, you know, even if it wasn't specifically him, maybe this is a general question for people about like, how do you know you find somebody that you're going to work with for a long time? Uh, yeah, I, I, that, that's a good question. I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, I, I started working with him and at the time he lived in Nashville and not very far from the studio. And I just remember uh, when he wasn't on tour, it was kind of like his clubhouse or playground. Uh, and a first question, who is Ben Folds? Why don't you introduce him to the rock stars? The ghost of Ben Folds is standing right here. Yeah, just an uh, amazing singer-songwriter, piano player. And there's really nobody that I've seen or heard that plays piano like him, yeah. which is kind of a fun thing to, you know, as far as on a recording end, he's one of those guys where, you know, when he would play Letterman, I would hear stories of like, you know, Paul Schaefer would always be kind of like looking over to see what his voicings were and stuff right, like right. that. You know, it's just kind of, yeah, and he beats on the piano and he breaks, he's the only person I know that breaks strings on the piano. Wow. He's the only person I've seen do a show who I'm pretty sure he stood back and lifted up his piano bunch, which was like a drum stool, you he know, throws it. and he throws the drum stool at the piano keys. Yeah. He, he, he times it right. It, he times it to, and it bounces off the keys. And there was an old, I mean, I was probably in the nineties. There was like an MTV news with, I think it was like with Kurt Loder or something like that. And they always, in the beginning of the MTV news thing, they always showed a, a stool flying and hitting a piano that was like from, <laughs> 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 but yeah, but I, you know, I used to, I used to pick him up from his house and it was sort of like a, it was sort of like a clubhouse, you know, and we would, and he would always have, he'd always have a bunch of things he was working on. And, you know, some of that turned out on some of the EPs that we worked on. Some of it turned out to be on his album songs for Silverman. And um, I don't know, it was just one of those things. I started working with them, you know. Did like, you work with him when they were the Ben Folds Five? And did you go out? I know he lived in Virginia or North Carolina or something like Chapel, that for a I while. Chapel, Chapel Hill, Hill yeah. yeah. Were you part of that or was that no, after that was, coming I, back I was to after, 
I was after Rock in the Suburbs when he did that. Right. I, he, I was I came I worked with him after that. But I did do there was a Ben Folds Five album called Sound of the Life of the Mind that came out and I think 2012 that I did. And it was sort of like, I guess like a reunion album kind of thing. But yeah, and then not, I've known those guys now and they're, they're great. But back, back then I didn't, you know, I didn't know them at all. Well, uh, actually Ben was one of the first artists I ever saw when I moved to Nashville in 91. Oh, he lived here early. Yeah, he was, yeah. And, he, and he, you know, he was always advocating early on. He was one of the few guys that was just like, you know, Nashville's awesome. Yeah. It's very cool. Vanderbilt Radio was playing uh, Ben's single, and I think it was called Uncle Uncle Walter. Oh, that's that's the and first this was album, Jody's yeah. Power Bill was the name of his band, and so we went to go see him <laughs> yeah, at at uh, and Porter. Way oh back yeah, then. he was playing Twelfth and Porter. Like. And I was like, man, this is great. You know, this guy he was awesome. So and then he went on to go. He kind of moved off and did the Ben Folds Five and, yeah. in uh, Chapel Hill, and then got a lot of attention and came back again. So he used to roll. I, he was telling me stories about because I didn't. I was always a fan of the band, but I never saw them back mm -hmm. then. I mean, but I had the records and. But he would tell me, I mean, he, they would wheel, they'd be, they'd play CBGBs, you know, and it was like all these punk guys and stuff. And he would like roll a piano into CBGBs, you know, it was kind of <laughs> like, to me, that's way more punk than probably yeah. all those punk dudes there. You want to talk about his live piano miking technique? Cause that's pretty unique. Uh, you know, I don't right? know much about it. I know back then he used to have pickups because because the piano, uh, well, he still has pickups now, but back then. Like a help and steel pickup or something. Yeah. Like that. He's got that a few different things now, but I know back then he had, um, he had pickups and I think he used to run those pickups through Marshall stacks. Yeah. That's, and I never did see that. So I never was about, you know, cause he told me, cause he, he has a, a piano that, that he, we could, you know, it's the Ben Folds five piano, but it's a tack piano now. And it's got gouges on the left from his, uh, I always thought it was from his knuckles. It's on the, um, it's not, you know, not on the keys, but on the 90 degree part of the, the wood there. And, um, he's got, um, I always thought it was from his knuckles, but he said it's from the tips of his fingers. He'd be hitting the back, hitting the back on the way to the on piano the way keys. to the low keys. So uh, you, there's these gouges in there. Um, it's and, not from his um, his like Super Bowl ring or something. No, yeah, 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 he's got, off he's got rings going on. <laughs> um, but then he used to run it through Marshall Stack. That's all I know. Now Leo Overtoom, who's just been his front of house guy forever, he uses. Um, I know he uses help and stills, and I think there's maybe like a low, mid, and a high. And of course, I you know I could be not telling this right because. Times when I've recorded live stuff, I get mics and and um, you open it up like I open in the it up, studio, like, yeah, and I get and I get mics and 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 uh, pickups. The mics, I don't you're know like how, I don't want none of that wacky shit. Yeah, I don't know what the I don't know if Leo uses the, uh, he obviously uses the mics a bit in in the live in the live stuff, but the um, he's got I think one two three three help and stills, and I, he's got something called a pure. It, it's always labeled P dot P pure something. It's it's a um, it's another pickup, okay. and then he's got a pair of. Shirtler, pure pickup? Shirtlers. Pure pickup. It could be. It could be. Um, and he's got a pair of Shirtler pickups as well. But the cool thing about that is when he slams on the, like when he live and he slams on the on the low end of the piano, those pickups are like. They're deep. They're, they're massive they're up. Yeah, for the live yeah, stuff. I yeah. mean, it makes it sound thunderous, you know? Yeah. So I don't know much about a Helpenstiel pickup, but Rockstars, it, there was a Helpenstiel made an electric piano that mm. they put in a long, long, long pickup in it, which was, I guess, like a coil pickup or a magnetic pickup much like a guitar. And so help and steel pickups, you could take them out of the help and steel piano and insert them into a grand, like, like Ben would tour with. And I remember reading an article years ago about how he would take a, a little Mackie mixer and it was tacked upside down underneath still, the piano. It's still, under, it's still under the piano there. In fact, I think we maybe took it down to use it for something else. But when I used to get under that piano, two things I remember about that was one, he would freak out because one of the legs was messed up. So he'd always like, be careful, you know, 
And the other thing was the Mackie mixer was under there. Now that, that piano was now a tack piano. He put a bunch of tacks in it. So we used it as nice, a tack piano, nice. but that was the piano they toured with. And yeah, there was a Mackie mixer. It had all the, the pickups going to, I guess, a Marshall stack. Right. And then you yeah. can kind of blend sure. mics and pick up and yep. stuff like that. Yep. So that's cool. Let's talk while we're on piano. Let's talk about recording piano in the studio. Piano is, um, I would say this to you, rock stars. If you haven't recorded piano before, you might go like piano recording piano. What's the big deal? What do you put like a mic on it? You put a couple of mics on it. I present to you that recording piano is every bit as complicated as recording an entire drum kit. And there are probably as many ways to record it as there are a drum kit. Take it away, Joe. What do you want to say about recording piano, man? Well, first of all, I think George Carlin said a phrase that you'll never hear anyone say is hand me that piano. That's one of them. <laughs> Which exactly probably, right. Hand me uh, that um, piano. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a fan of large diaphragm condenser mics you know, everyone's taste is different. I usually like from like the Neumann variety, just for that mid range curve. And, um, sometimes Coles, if a piano is too honky, I'll use Coles. But what I do is basically it's a spaced pair in cardioid. And I always stick my head in the, you know, with the lid up, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully no one's going to clamp it down on me. And I always listen to wh whoever is playing what, and you know, it's kind of easy to maybe go like, Oh, I'll put one down here on the low area and I'll put one up here in the high area above. But what I found is, and it's an arrangement thing again, too, you, you, for whatever song it is, the piano player may only be playing like, you know, the low end to the mid octave or something like that. And so if you do a, a low high, sometimes the way it shakes out, the way the resonances are and the soundboard and everything, you'll just get like a ton of like left mic stuff. Right. So I always stick my head in there and hear what's going on. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll always do some, a low high type of thing, but I might have to put that high one further in. So it's kind of like, Oh, uh, how would you, it's kind of like parallel to the back of the piano sort of thing. So it may look a little funny, but you'll get a better stereo spread. But also lately, you know, I, I got used to kind of putting them like right inside the piano and, but lately if I can, and there's not going to be a, a ton of leakage, I just kind of back them off quite a bit too. And just kind of make sure there's no phasing and make sure whatever they're playing, if it's like super heavy on one side and, you know, I may go out and readjust the mic so I don't have to kind of gain up the whole other side for any reason. Right. Um, just so if you're, so you've got two mics going on the piano and then those two mics are typically maybe panned in, yeah. in the speakers or something like that. Yeah. Do you find that it more often than not, it's like a straight up hard left, hard right panning or is Sometimes it I try to do that and I get, um, it takes up a lot of space, but that's, I like the sound. And plus that's what I'm used to because the, the, you know, doing all that stuff with Ben, he's, he's kind of like the guy taking up all the space. Right. So the piano is the big instrument. Like, yeah. Boom, you know, but you know, in other, in other projects, it, it may be too much and I may have to you know, as you start fitting something into a mix, it's like, oh, is that too big? You know, I've worked with some yeah. artists just like, I might be too big. You know, I'm like, yeah, you're right. And for, well, you know, I'm just kind of used to starting that way. Let's go with the idea of the piano being a big deal. Let's say somebody's about to record a piano vocal performance or something like that, or a piano vocal record. You're trying to get, you may be panning one mic hard left, one mic hard right. Mm -hmm. And then do you sort of, if the piano doesn't sound balanced, then it's like, okay, let me just go move the mics like we're moving a camera, taking a picture of the piano yeah, or something like that? Yeah, I try that. Sometimes I will gain up the one side and just see what's going on with that. And it, that, that, might, that might just be all it needs. But, you know, a lot of times I'll go in and say, well, why is that? And like, oh, they're not even going to be playing like the upper octaves. I mean, right. I'll ask you, like, are you, do you think you're playing an on? I mean, you, no one never knows until they start playing. But sometimes they'll be like, nah, I'm not even going to be up there because, you know, I'm just, this, no so part then of I'll, that, yeah. I'll rearrange that high mic so it's not just hanging out. Yeah, it's, it's not mic in the part of the piano that's not even being played. Right, and when you stick your head in there too, it's kind of funny. You'll notice like some of the, a lot of the high stuff will come through the low mic as well because the way the soundboard resonates. Right. It's like, well, 
and some of the low stuff will come through the high side, like the low end. Will be, it's just it's it's very complex in there. So do you find the the mics are often underneath the piano lid? If this is a grand piano, they're like inside and under the lid. Yes, um, and and if there's other musicians in the room, I'll probably blanket it off. But if there aren't, and it's I can back away. I'll try to. Sometimes I'll do. I'll kind of back a, back them away and face them kind of like 45 degree angle in and kind of be at the edge of the lid. You know what I mean? Like, right, that, right. That, you know, and that way that's going to be more of like, a, you know, I'm not going to be able to get that mic further in because I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to back it off. And that usually the, the balance works out that way because now you're just getting the projection of. So it's as if that. you were leaning your head to go in to um, listen to the piano, but you didn't go so far in that your head's underneath the lid. Correct. Or right when the lid's about to go over your head, you stop and you're yeah. listening right there. And I try that and kind of do like a, a spaced pair kind of. Just, yeah, that are they're aiming away from each other, um, uh, or just, yeah, they're just or they both. Could, they could be they could be kind of almost in the same direction, maybe just angled. They just, just, just depends on how. Yeah, and it's usually usually that captures it kind of nice. Like I try not to overthink it too much. Every once in a while, I'll stick um, you know, uh, maybe like a ribbon mic in the center of those, so the phasing's not bad, just to get a different sound if I if I want to. Um, and then Ben has a lot of ideas on that too. Like sometimes I'll do that. We used to use his. Uh, CMV 563s with a cardioid head on it. They're okay. Neumann, Neumann yeah. large diaphragm tube mics. But sometimes he'd be like, oh man, let's try uh, something else, you know, or whatever. He just gets ideas, but I'm sure, you know, and he kind of has an idea of what he wants pretty much. And he has great ideas for recording. So I was like, okay, let's try that. Let's try Royer's. Like, oh, that's, that's cool for this. Let's try that. How often do you use an SM57? I don't think I have. Really? You're missing out, dude. What is no. that? Is the, is the, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. No, I think we built the studio with those, but we don't use them for recording. Yeah, I know. I don't, I, um, I say that and I wonder if we've tried that in the past where I can't, I can't recall. It's probably, it's been a long time. I heard I've done that. Um, advice once when I was in school from uh, sound, live sound guys and they, what is it? Claire Brothers? That's the big company, yeah. right? So they, they had worked with Claire Brothers, I think. And he said, here's a tip for you. He said, for live sound, when you're recording a piano, a quick and dirty, easy way to get um, a piano mic'd up is you take a 57 and you stick it in the third sound hole. Cool. So you just like plunk it right down. And I try that in the studio and it's definitely pretty cool and funky. I bet it's great, yeah. Um, you know, it's not hi-fi, but it's right. it's got great attitude and yeah. character and stuff. Yeah, um, 57s always are just, you know, acoustic guitars, things like, you know, it might, might sound weird solo, but once you get it into the track, it's like, oh, yeah. it's kind of cool. You're like, wow, I don't have to roll off all the low end on this one. Yeah, exactly, it. yeah. So now um, I, I know we're, we're, we're taking up some time, but we got so much good stuff to talk yeah. about, Rockstars. <laughs> so um, let's talk about recording piano and vocal. That is a challenging beast right there. It is. What do you want to say about what you've learned about somebody who's singing and playing piano? You talked about recording Sarah Bareilles. Yeah, I just, you know, if I can remember correctly, I probably did that spaced CMV thing more more under the lid, though. And then she probably had a U47 to sing into. We used to have a little foam barrier that I would put up just to kind of isolate the vocal a bit. Um, so that means a foam. So you, if you're like sitting at the piano, yeah. you're singing into this U47 and behind it is a piece of foam, which means she wouldn't see the strings of the piano. In other she words. wouldn't see. Yeah, and they, they'd sit on like the metal part above the you know, above the strings, basically right. just kind of float there and just to get some isolation and that's it. And it's usually okay. And you're in a space that can breathe a lot. Like my studio is a little more smaller room. You know, the piano's coming off the walls into every mic. You know what? Too. That's, that's true. Um, yeah. In, in, in studio A, that piano would just kind of, kind of go off into the, into the ether, you know, and, and then the vocal would be cool. I mean, you'd, you'd hear some of it, but it would be fine. You know, you'd want to watch out for phasing if you didn't have the foam, but I find it cool to just kind of block it off like that. 
And that seems to work out. And then maybe a couple of rim mics to capture the whole thing. But Okay. What about doing the same thing in a smaller space? Ooh. What have you found? I don't know if I've had to do that in a smaller space. It's always in the smaller spaces. It's always been piano overdubs and not piano vocals. Right. So that would present some possible challenges, especially if it's going to bounce off behind you, that kind of thing. Yeah. How loud the piano is in the room, how quiet they are as a singer. What about situations where you're recording the vocal and the piano and then you're replacing one of the two? Does Do you find that happening some or mostly you know, not? I think, I think we've done that, repaired a couple words here or there. It's probably fine. You know, it depends on how much you hear the piano like go away. If it, Sometimes yeah. that becomes part of the sound. If it's, if it leaks into the vocal mic a lot and it could sound great, but that might be just part of the sound. It might center the whole thing. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then you would notice, you know, Hey, did that piano dip or, or do I really notice it? Should I create a diversion and put something else there to, you know? <laughs> well, so quick question, because that also brings to mind the experience that I've had sometimes where when you're tracking stuff and things aren't kind of hyped yet, like they might be in mm-hmm. mixing and mastering, certain things will fly and you don't notice them but you might notice them later. Do you run into that where you're like, you have to sort of exaggerate what could happen while you're recording something to make sure it doesn't become a problem down the road? I've done that. I've used like a ridiculous amount of compression on the back end sometimes just to see if anything gets crazy. Like if the leakage is going to cause, like if you were to slam this thing, which I'm not going to do, but if you're going to go so extreme and see how much that will go away. And that brings up another cool point. It's like a little bit of a tangent, but maybe doing like a... um when you're doing rough mixes, I, it's just kind of the same thing when I do rough mixes. It's one thing if like you're doing like drums, bass, guitar, and then you do like a bunch of that all day. And it's like, oh, let us let me just have a bunch of roughs to see where we are. And like, yeah, you want to do the roughs and get out of there and stuff. But once you're further along in a project, and I've done it a few times where I've had rough mixes as final mixes because I just couldn't beat them. But that's another thing. And the way Joe Pazapia puts it in a good way, it's like kind of put the, take your rough mix and kind of, you know, bring it out into the sun you know, put a suit and tie on it, add your overall compression, overall EQ, get it, get it, like shine the light on it and see if there's any kind of ugly bits that might not survive. And you'll know ahead of time. I'm like, oh, well, if I do that, eh, you know, I'm kind of heading, I'm planning on going that way. So is this going to live or not? It's like, is it weird? Is it coming? You know, that way you kind of know I've done that before. And all of a sudden I just can't beat the rough mix, yeah. but that's a whole other thing. But, but in, in a sense, I think it's almost like what you're saying when you're doing an overdub, sometimes just double check and do something crazy to it to make sure, especially if there's leakage involved or, you know, if there's a click track, you can't get out or something like yeah, that. You can just yeah, like, let, me just, let me just kind of do this extreme on the back end and just see what's going on. You know, click tracks are such a drag. I have discovered in the past couple of years, few years, how to begin using, I'm no expert by any means, but I've started using RX uh, isotope bars at RX. I just did that recently to get Amazing. out string buzzes that were, uh, and I don't mind string like, you know, I think it was a classical guitar thing and that's part of it, but these were so loud and I couldn't figure out, I tried to DS or I couldn't do that. And I, I watched a video on RX. I think it took me 40 minutes. I got rid of all of them and not even got rid of them. I think they were just like, they just sounded natural in the, without jumping out like 10 dB at you. Yeah. I had a flugelhorn solo <laughs> that you could hear the valves clacking Yeah, and they, they, I got a mixed comment about it. And so I went in, I took the flugelhorn mics and I went in and I removed every valve clack and put it back in. And it was like, isn't that crazy? Great. Good to go. You don't even notice it now. Magic. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, cool. So let's talk about drums for just a sec. Okay. And then I want to see if you got any good stories for us about somebody whose initials are WS. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell us about some ways that you really enjoy recording drums. What are some favorite things? Do you have anything you want to share about recording overheads 
in the best way. I, um, I try different things with overheads. I, I go in different moods. But the big thing with overheads for me is I, it's kind of like, um, you know, and everything, everyone does things a different way. So I, you know, I don't, I don't want to try to be down on it, but it, it, like, it's a little bit of a pet peeve when people use overheads just to mic cymbals, that sound, I, I, that, that sound bothers me because it's more like, uh, the drums always sound like a collection of close mics and that nothing feels cohesive. It's just a lot of things popping at you. So whatever I do for overheads, sometimes it's like an ORTF pattern with a couple of, you know, stereo pattern. Sometimes it's that Glenn Johns method. Sometimes it's spaced cardioids where I measure the snare drum from each mic. So the, you know, the mic over the floor tom will be a little lower and stuff, but whatever I do, I always mic them over the plane of the drums because to me, that's when I get drum sounds, I always get, I always listen to the overheads first and I always have the drummer just play something instead of hitting a bass drum over and over again. And I listen to my overheads first because to me, that's kind of like the kit sound. And then as I start bringing in the close mics, that supplements the kit sound. So so when you say a plane of the drums, it's almost as if the mics are just above the drummer's head, getting a similar, somewhat similar yeah, perspective of what the kit sounds like. pretty much or close, like the snare drum rack tom-ish to floor tom-ish. So you're basically, you know, you're, you're getting the whole, you're getting the whole kit, not just worrying about cymbals. You know, sometimes the way a drummer plays the cymbals might be the loudest thing in it, but right. now when you start adding your drums in, I, I find usually I've got to flip the overheads out of phase to make everything else work. And, and then the toms have to go with that as well. Yeah. I've noticed, um, I definitely check all my phase on it, but I've never really decided on what the right answer is for phase. I just kind of flip until I get it. Whatever it's, whatever but it's interesting. Good. You say that flipping the overheads, cause I've done that a bunch too. Yeah, that was um, the Joe Baldridge thing I, I learned from him. And I learned from him also doing that. He would always listen to the overheads first mm-hmm. and then bring things in. And yeah, the overheads, once I start doing that, this and I bring the snare drum in, well, the snare drum always sounds weak. And then when I flip the overheads, the bass drum and snare drum are awesome. Yeah. And then, Although, ironically, sometimes the bass drum sounds awesome and the snare drum doesn't sound that's as awesome. Weird. It's like, oh no, what do you do? Um, and then, oh, that could be like one of your mics are flipped, like a you know, pins flipped or something, but, uh, and then usually the toms have to get flipped with the overheads. That's just the way I do it. I mean, I remember someone saying like, why don't you just flip the kick in the snare and then the rest of all, and technically that's true. For some reason that bothers me and I don't know why it's like the, the two close things in your face. I want them to come in in the correct way. Yeah. And then the far away stuff, I want to compensate for the close stuff. Right. And then, then when the toms come in, it's like, well, yeah, if I'm going to flip the overheads, those have to get flipped too, because they sound thin. That's just what I've found. I, I mean, I always, I check it every single time and that's what seems to happen. The only time it hasn't been that way is if, you know, one of the mics was flipped out or something like that. And it was like, well, okay, let me. Well, so Rockstars, um, we've talked about this a lot on on the podcast about flipping the polarity, the phase between the different mics so that they all add up together. And again, the easiest way to understand this is the mics do nothing more than go through a hell of a lot of crap and confuse a lot of people to ultimately make the speaker come towards you or go away from you. That's all it does. And um, when you got a bunch of mics going together, if there, if one mic's telling the speaker to come towards you in that moment and the other mic's telling the speaker to go away from you, then the speaker is confused and it makes a frowny face at you and it That's doesn't good sound to good. It, yeah. you know? <laughs> it doesn't sound as good. But uh, one thing that we don't always acknowledge is just, what if we're just doing a single mic? Well, you can still flip polarity on a single mic and you'll be surprised that there will be times where you listen to say just the overheads. Um, well, let's just pretend we're doing a, a single mono overhead, put it as mono overhead and with no other mics in there, flip the polarity on that mono overhead 
and see if you actually like one of those ways better than the other. You might be surprised that, you know, your speakers, your headphones, whatever, that one way sounds better and start with that, you know, and then just start adding in the rest of your mics. Yeah. All right. So let's jump forward to... Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. One of the one what's of the, the one deal? of the weirdest one of the weirdest records. <laughs> yeah, what's the deal with recording Captain Kirk? Come on. Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? Now he uh let me just preface it by saying that dude is genius. He is. He Brilliant. Is. He's he's funny, man. He he's oh yeah, well Ben, you know, when I first started working with him, he's within like a six months or something, he said, Oh, we're gonna do a I'm gonna make a William Shatner record here. And I had just started working with them. And I said, man, I will go and, and get, I'll run errands. I'll do whatever. I just want to be around for that. He's like, no, no, you can, you don't engineer it. You know, I was like, oh, all right, cool. You know? So yeah, we, it, it was, it was weird. It's like, he, he's going to come in for like a day or two before and do some pre-production. So he said, I may have you come in and, or not, you know, I said, okay. So Ben calls me one night. He said, it's like five o'clock. He says, you want to come in tonight? We're here. And I was like, okay, I remember being in the car, like, this is just weird. This is weird. Get to the studio, and they're both, him and Shatner, are sitting in the back, way back of the room, like, with a table, and he's like, oh, this is Bill, you know, he's like, oh, hey, hey, man, how you, how you doing? He's just like, he had that, you know, Bill, really cool, it. really cool guy, and uh, so what we did was we set up a U47 at the, at the desk there, and he just uh, spoke through a bunch of things, and one of the things, I think, was like a you know, like the Hindenburg disaster, there was the broadcast of that, and there was a couple other things, and and we were recording the radar at the time. So I remember just running the radar and being like, this is so bizarre, you know? <laughs> and so, and then they did a, there's a, there's a song on there called I Can't Get Behind That on that record. But, but Ben started doing some pre-production with him. He kind of played like a beatnik sort of thing on the drums while, while Shatner was like, I can't get behind, you know, he had a laundry list of things he couldn't, couldn't get with. And um, so we were, I was playing that back and messing with it. And Ben was like, well, man, why don't you copy this to that and try? And uh, I, I turned to my left and, and, um, there's a video camera in my face and it's Shatner <laughs> and he's videoing everything. He was like, so he was asking like all kinds of questions. He was like, so excited about the process, you know, and throughout that week and a week and a half, he was just, he was like having a blast. It wow, was a really good great. time. And, um, uh, man, we had good Lord. We had the, the amount of musicians that we, so that was like the first couple days. And then I know the first, the first kind of like session day, it was John Painter was playing bass and Ben was playing drums and Brad Paisley came in and did a song. Ah, nice. And uh, with Shatner and all that, and then and then like the rest of the musicians came in. So we had Matt Chamberlain on drums, and Sebastian Steinberg on bass, John Auer on guitar, and John Painter. Adrian Ballou came and played guitar. Nice, yeah, that's right. He's a Nashville cat. Yeah, too. And we had it. Henry Rollins came in for a few days, and Joe Jackson came in for a few days. And uh, man, it was crazy. And we were just kind of doing stuff. Like Ben would have chorus ideas, and they'd work something out, and then Bill would have his words, you know, and. That's a cool thing too. He just so just call him, just call me Bill. You know, just so call just me Bill. Like Bill. You didn't know. I didn't know. No one knew what to call him. He's like, just this, this Bill. call me Bill. Call me Bill. Right. I can't even do a Captain so, Kirk impersonation. Myself. So he, yeah, and it was a good time, and and it was just really, it was just awesome. And um, Henry Rollins was great. You know, he just uh, talking politics with him, and and he was just very cool. But there was a funny, goofy story that, uh, like, I'll always remember. And the band had finished up something, and uh, I was in the control room by myself, and I. I think at the time we, I was sending stuff over to the Digio one to do some, like if I had to do some editing, editing, you know, and, uh, but I don't remember what I was doing. I was in there and sitting there and then, uh, Chatner comes in with a notepad right? and he goes, uh, Joe, we're going to get dinner. I'm taking the order. <laughs> I said, oh, cool. All right. You know, he said, now you've got, I've got two options here. I've got a Thai food 
So, okay. He goes, or, or Baja fresh. And I went, Oh, I'll have pad Thai. That'd be great. If they could just be mild, I'm kind of like a spice weenie, you know, he goes, Oh, um, Baja fresh. I went, no, no, no. Uh, Thai food would be cool. Just that pad Thai would be great. Thanks for taking the order. You know, he's like, um, Baja fresh. <laughs> and I went, well, let me look at that. And I went, okay, I'll get the bubble. And he said, Oh, good choice. You know, and he wrote it down. I was like, that's kind of weird. You know, whatever. He leaves the room and I keep working. And about 15 minutes later, Ben comes in to get something. I said, Hey, I told him the story. He's like, what's the deal? He wouldn't let me, <laughs> he kept, you know, he had this option of Thai food. So he wouldn't let me order the Thai food. I had to order Baja Fresh. He goes, man, he's got a stack of coupons out there for Baja Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he really loved Baja Fresh <laughs> for whatever great. reason. The fact that he would not let me order the other one was the weirdest. <laughs> I love the idea of, of William Shatner, Bill, Bill, having a stack of coupons, you know, oh, and being a, like a thrifty individual at the same time. All these coupons. Let's, uh, yeah. let's do Baja Fresh. You know? I also love the fact that, you know, the um, interface of choice for the, um, you know, the bridge of the USS Enterprise was the uh, Digio One at that time while you're making the record. <laughs> That's right. That's pretty cool. So rock stars, I don't want to hear anybody complaining about the gear they've got. If uh, <laughs> if the Digio One was good enough for, for Captain Kirk and, and the USS Enterprise, <laughs> Star Trek, we're good to go. So That's awesome, man. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty funny. That, uh, that record was so cool. Um, We'll, uh, Rockstars, we'll include links to this in the show notes and everything. Um, I've forgotten the name of the record. It's called Has Been. Has Been, all right. And was what was the title of the band? Was It was like... It, it was just, they didn't even call themselves anything. It was just basically like it was William Shatner, Has Been. And they, okay. they, they were the musicians on the... Has Been. Yeah. And uh, and he was a jokester too. He would just joke around. I remember one, I, I bought my first Mac laptop back then. And I still had to, I remember I brought it to the studio. I was talking about ordering it. And I had to still install the airport card into it and everything. And John Hour was going to get one too. And he was like, eh, I'll do it when I get home and all that. And so I walked in with it and John said, oh, cool. You got it. I said, yeah, I got to put the airport card in it. And, and Shatner was there. We had a, um, a massage chair right as we walked in and he's just in the massage chair, just, you know, and he goes, uh, you know, Joe, you should have waited a, a day. You know, they, the Apple just came out with a new laptop today. I went, really? What do you mean? He goes, yeah, you know, it's got little more wires hanging off of it and, and buttons and things like that. I was like, oh man, it's like, <laughs> you just like, you just mess with you, you know? <laughs> but, you know, we'd punch in, punch in things and he'd be like, wait a minute, what happened? It's like, well, we just fixed it. You know, I was like, well, how did you fix it? Well, you punch in it. Really? You can do that? Like he was just. That's great. The, 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 That's um, why I had the video camera out. He's fascinated by the studio. He place. was all about it. He was like, he, you know. Did, now, I know there was a famous studio in LA that was completely decked out to look like the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> really? The, the, yeah. Awesome. Like, the, like the bridge. And it was owned by the guy who had been one of the kids in the early episode. Remember the kids who would like shake their fist and they go ching, ching, ching and make things happen. Yeah. 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 I I, that's so. all I remember about it. So I'll see if I can find a link to that to your rock stars. <laughs> really cool I stuff. All right. So uh, we're, we're taking up lots of time. We'll take a break now and we'll come back in in just a moment for the jam session rock stars. Before we go, I want to remind you, you can find all the things we're talking about in the show notes, which are at rsrockstars.com, And then just search Joe Costa and I'll take you right to the blog post. Or if you're just listening on your phone or something, you can just click through and you should see the show notes right there and we'll have clickable links to everything so you can go check it out. And then a um, little pitch here. If you uh, enjoyed the music at the beginning of the episode, that, of course, would be my record, Skadoosh. 
And you can go check out the music at skadooshmusic.com. S-K-A-D-O-O-S-H. Yeah. All right, we'll see you in a minute for the jam session. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, Rockstars, we're back. We're going to jump into the jam session. My guest today is Joe Costa. Joe, are you ready to jam? Yes. Sweet, man. <laughs> when you started out in recording, what was holding you back? Uh, I think just the age, just my age, you know, I always felt, um, you're like 157 I'm or 150, I was then I was 157 then now, I didn't feel like anything was necessarily holding me back. It's just, you know, you're an assistant and you're trying to get like more first in gigs. And I just think at the time, you know, and things might be different now. I just think maybe people weren't quite trusting of a 20 something year old, you know, doing that, which it's fine. And you notice later on, it's like people were a lot more comfortable with that. Right. You know, so I, if anything, maybe just that. They were afraid you weren't going to load up the next reel of tape and you were going to interrupt yeah, the gonna session basket. I was just going to go on dates or something and just not show up. You just know? go on dates. <laughs> now at this age, now I'm like, man, if only I could just go on dates or something. <laughs> All right. So um, how about some of the best advice you received? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I used to have a, a, a teacher at, at Berkeley. Uh, he's an engineer named Bill Shineman. He used to do a lot of stuff uh, in New York and... Uh, he had something to do with that Ace Frehley solo album. I don't know if he oh, did nice. it or, or back in the New York groove. I don't know if he worked on it or he found the song or something, but he, he's, he was a great engineer, but he always had a really cool thing about, and it's applicable today. You know, sometimes if you're in the middle of a mix, especially if you're on a console or something like that, and you're just listening down to the mix, a lot of times you're tempted to just go like, yeah, that's not right. Let me fix that. And you stop it. And you go, you go like halfway through the mix and you're like, ah, let me do that. And you go back and he's like, his advice was roll the tape and sit on your hands. And just listen, just listen, sit on your hands, you know, and, and that's just like, you know, make sure you don't touch anything. Another th cool bit of advice too is, is, is kind of like, um, psychological thing or whatever. But, you know, sometimes when you're working with, uh, anyone, producer, artist or whatever, and they, if you have a, uh, an idea that's very, um, you know, like if you, if, if you think that maybe something should go in another direction and instead of being ego related and saying like, I think this should be this way, you're wrong. I think this should be this way. He had a way of doing it where he would kind of put that off. And by say like, he's like, I think the record might need 
whatever, you know, right. and it kind of turned the record into this entity. I need, it's a needy, them. it's a needy girlfriend, like the re- a needy child. Yeah, the record, I think the record needs, um, he said, and that always helped to make it not like coming from him necessarily. Like, do you, do you think the record needs this? Do you think the record needs that? And not like, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. Cause if people didn't take that, you know, kindly, then maybe, you know, yeah. it would help out anyway. And, and for the female rock stars out there, I apologize. Or like a needy boyfriend, just totally <laughs> fair there. Probably boyfriends are more needy than needy girlfriends probably, are. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have been myself. Who knows? <laughs> probably all have been. Well, why are we talking so much about boyfriends and girlfriends? I know, on this right? Episode? You need to do a different podcast now. It's like a podcast. relationship podcast. <laughs> all right. So now how about um, sharing a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something the rock stars can use on their next session today? Ooh, you know what's kind of cool? I've only used it twice, but it's really cool. It was, a, um, it was an Andy Johns thing I saw, and it was talking about miking a bass amp. And... You know, a lot of times if you have a DI and, and you're micing the bass amp, sometimes it works out. Sometimes the phasing is just a little out, you know, sometimes it's completely out. Sometimes it sounds great. And you're always kind of that comb filtering stuff. His solution, which works great, by the way, is to um, take your bass mic. If you can do this, if you're in a room, like if your bass, if your amp is isolated somewhere, take your bass mic and back it up at least four feet and put it in figure eight. Interesting. And what'll happen is, um, I've noticed this, the two times I've done it, the, the mic was completely out of phase. So I, I flipped it and then it sounded great. Now the mic by itself won't sound great, but when you mix it with the DI, it creates the dirt of the amp without causing any of the phase problems. Interesting because it's farther away. Yeah. It's further away. Yeah. And, and figure eight instead of cardioid helps relieve that as well. But it has to be, I think he said three or four feet or something like that. Something. Well, one thing that figure eight would do is it would reject what's on the walls on either side sides, if you're in a yeah. narrow enough space. Yeah. And it would make the amp sound further back. And then the back of the mic means that you're hearing a reflection off the back wall towards right. the mic as well. So that's, right. that's interesting stuff. You know, that reminds me, we were talking about figure eight mics before we rolled this interview. And you had some great suggestions, which we should go into. You talked about using the uh, mic tech cv3 in a figure eight right? yeah yeah for um one of the hardest things is uh, recording a guitar vocal i mean it's just somebody will sometimes usually sing really loud and play really soft and you get all that um you know vocal bleed that's going to phase out with the vocal it's kind of can be a nightmare and uh i've just started using and i particularly love the mic tech cv3 for a lot of things actually but in this case for acoustic guitar and I, I put it in figure eight mode because the, the sides reject an insane amount. So is the CV3 recording the acoustic or the yeah, vocal? The, the acoustic. Okay, great. And then uh, I get it right up maybe around the 12th fret or something like that. And you may have to roll off some low end because you, you have to get it up fairly close. But, and then I point the top of the mic where it would be rejecting at the singer's mouth. And then for the, you know, for the lead, for the vocal, maybe I use an SM7. But you can really um, get rid of a lot of that vocal in that figure eight mic down below and it shouldn't cause much phasing problems. You, you have to mess with it and kind of look and see, make, you know, see if they move and all that stuff, but you can really, you can really eliminate a lot of that. Actually. All right. So rock stars, I'm going to throw a tip out about a way to help you do that. Be out there with headphones on and place the mic. So if you're recording yourself, start with the guitar mic in figure eight and position it in front of yourself so that when you're talking or singing from your spot, you, you turn it until the figure eight rejection is pointed right to your voice and you should hear your own voice disappear in the headphones the most, you know? So find that sweet spot or vice versa. If you're Good miking idea. up an, yeah. another guitarist, the singer, 
just listen in the headphones to just the guitar mic and and find a position where you hear the least amount of voice in it and then add the vocal mic. Now, what vocal mic would you use? Would this be a cardioid or would it also be a figure eight trying to reject the guitar? You know, you could do that. I've just found um, an SM7 works cool. It's cardioid, but it's it's very directional. The problem I usually have is too much vocal in the guitar mic. Like I don't have problems with a ton of guitar in the vocal mic. And if it is, it doesn't bother me that much. It's just the phasiness of the of the vocal in the in the acoustic guitar mic. So yeah. but you could you could do um yeah, you could do another figure eight and then just kinda, you know, play your acoustic guitar while you're singing and just kinda you strum it a little bit and kinda angle it to where like does you hear the the least amount of acoustic guitar. Yeah. And then you should be Pretty good. You'll obviously hear bleed, but you won't get the phasing. The, the problem is the phasing issues where it just kind of sounds comb filtery. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, well, it is definitely a big challenge. So that's a good one to know. And then one last tip, Rockstars, is check the polarity of the guitar mic against the vocal or vice versa. Now, here's another thing. I know t- tangents after tangents after tangents. I love tangents. But um, I only discovered this. I had taken my U67, sent it to the shop, got it back. I'm in the control room and I'm like, well, I got to test it and make sure it's working before I go put it out on the floor. And I popped on some headphones. I didn't use the speakers. I just put headphones on and I was talking into the mic and I put it in cardioid and I talked and I was like, okay, that's working. I go to the backside, it's rejecting. I'm like, okay, great. I go to um, Omni, my Omni setting and talk all around. I was like, cool. It sounds great everywhere. Great. I would go to figure eight setting and I talked into the front and then I went and um, talked into the back and it sounded different. And I was like, oh no, crap, did it get screwed up? And I was just about to write an email to the tech and I started thinking about it more and I was like, wait a minute. So if I'm talking into the front, it's phase positive in my earphones and in a figure eight, the back is phase negative. So when I'm talking into the back in my headphones, it's like reverse phase on my voice. Uh, right. And so then I flipped the phase and sure enough, the polarity and, and sure enough, it sounded right. And then you'd flip to the front and the front sounded wrong. And that was my discovery. I had never even, I'd recorded for 25 years and I didn't even realize that. But by discovering that, I realized that every time you're in a pair of headphones on a vocal mic, if you give yourself that chance to flip the polarity on just the vocal mic, you're going to discover one of those ways may sound better in the headphones than the other. And that's a big deal, especially if you've been sending out a vocal sound to your singer for years and years and years and oops, it might've been the wrong way. You know, that's <laughs> funny. The, um, John King showed me that over at Mic Tech because we, we were listening to some uh, some of their newer mics and I put headphones on and he's like, oh, put it out of phase. And I went, whoa, that sounds cool. I never thought about that. And he's like, yeah, because you're just from the way you're listening to it. And when you flip the phase, it just sounds better. And I went, I never thought of doing that. Like what? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> interesting stuff, you know, and then I think it begs the question too is the phase that sounds best in the headphones on the vocal mic, is that also going to sound the best coming out of the speakers or do you have to flip it? But, right. you know, fortunately the answer is trust your ears, try a couple of things and see what sounds best, sure. you know? Sure. All right, Groovy, enough, enough tangents, Lidge. Let's talk about <laughs> a favorite hardware tool. Now this could be anything you want, but something physical that when you've got it with you on sessions, you're always glad you got it. Mm. Um, I'll talk again about the Mic Tech CV3. I just, I, I bring that everywhere with me. And in fact, I have a friend that uh with joe pizapia he has one as well so we bother borrow we well, i'm sure we bother each other too we borrow each other's cv3s when we need a pair and uh, i use them for overheads and they're they're fantastic mics they're so cool you know and like a compressor i love i have a pair of really three a's that i love i'll probably never get rid of them and and uh yeah it's kind of like 
Yeah, I'd like to have deal. some LA three A's. I actually only use them some. So what, what are LA three A's best for? Because we have the plug-in versions of them. I love I love them on lead vo- cutting a lead vocal. Acoustic guitar is great. Bass is great. I mean, it's basically like anything that kind of sounds good in the LA two A solid state version sounds great. Oh, so the LA three A is a solid state version of LA2A, the LA two A. Basically, yeah, it's yeah, opto. It's you know, so it's a faster attack. You know, those they, the attack might be. I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if it's the exact same thing. Yeah, it's completely set like a LA two way, but I don't know if the attack and release, I guess the release is dependent because of the opto circuit, but the, the, uh, the attack, I'm not so sure if it's the same. It might be like 10 milliseconds or something like that, but they sound great. They're easy to use. They're real expensive now. Like I didn't know right. I've had mine forever. And I, I looked, I looked them up and it was like, Oh, they're like 5,500 for a pair now or wow. six grand for a pair. That's what's an 1176 going for. Oh, I don't know. They were going for a lot in the 90s. <laughs> that's, that's all I've got. One. One of those. I think it was Richard Dodd's fault though, yeah. of those going uh, sky high. Thanks, Richard. That's one more mention of Richard Dodd who I need to invite on the podcast. Oh, he's a great interview. I, 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 you know, I've oh, never interviewed I know, him. I just I love talking. I, haven't, I don't see him very much lately, but he, he imparts. He's one of those guys that just imparts so much wisdom. Yeah, it's just it, it would be great if you had him on here. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. All right, that's a shout out to you, Richard. Oh, I know yeah, you're Richard. spending all your spare time listening to that's right. two hour long podcasts. <laughs> all right, so now how about a favorite software tool or something really cool that you want to share with the rock stars? You know, I haven't. I really love the Slate Virtual Console because I'm mixing in the box a lot now, and I really love what it does. It really gels my mixes. It makes my mixes go a little faster too. Quick question: When you're setting it up, so you have to put it on each individual channel and then you sort of put it on the bus return channel or the master fader yeah, I put as well, it on everything, right? And then, and then whatever my master insert is, there's a, there's a different one. They, there's like two different plugins. One is for the channels and one is for the, one is for the for master. The returns, right? And the way I do it is it's a little cumbersome, but I'll put one on the master and then set it. Cause you can, you can group them, you know? So whenever you click on anything, all the, they all kind of do the same right, thing. Right. So I'll, I, you know, I'll put the master one on the master and, and make it group one. And then I'll, create one on one of the channels and make it group one. And then I'll use option click and copy to each, you know, and then it won't let you copy from mono to stereo or stereo mono. So I have to make a separate one and then copy those over. And then once that's done, my template's kind of set for the rest of my songs. I can just import my aux sends and then copy them over and all that stuff. Um, right. And you, would you put the, uh, the one on the channel would go, would be your last plugin slot? That's what I like. They they recommend it to be the first one, like you're you know you come like you're coming out of a console and then doing inserts. I like doing that the last one on the channels because it's like it's like I'm doing all my stuff in Pro Tools and then going to a console because that's if I if I'm zeroing stuff out in a console and, and using that as a summing bus, it's the same way. I mean, it's like you do right. all your Pro Tools stuff, then it goes to the summing bus of the console. So well, I, if I was on tape, I'd patch from the tape to an EQ and, and a compressor and then and to then, the console. Yeah. So I yeah exactly. So that's the way I I put it last, and then and the master is first. But, yeah. but the channels, to me, are last. You can try it first. Yeah, when they recommended that, I was like, but that's not the way I would do it. Like, I would do it this way. Well, maybe Slate would like you to put it first so that you're just like, well, let me just use some of those EQs and compressors instead. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I've, been, I've been using that a lot. Like anyway, it's, it's really cool. So now, what should somebody who's not familiar with it expect to hear the first time they try it out? Should they be like, whoa, that sounds way different? Or... Is it a subtle thing? Is it a trained ear kind of thing? You know, it's it's in between a subtle thing and a woe. Uh, it's not a woe for sure, but it can be because there's a drive knob. You can really start driving things and it'll really start to let things sit a lot easier. Uh, depending on the settings, there's there's different console settings and you can hear the difference between some, you know. Yeah, and it just depends on how, what, what your ears are tuned to. I mean, I, I notice it when I start working with it. I start working with it immediately. 
and I've been enjoying like the SSL E series. Just right. that's been my favorite. There, there's the answer to my next question. Yes, that's the one. And then I used to do the API and the Neve one for a while, but the, the, the SSL just it just kind of sits there nice. And and what I'll do is there's a group, you know, on, on one of them I'll just hit like group bypass or something like that. And then you can hear how it just sort of like everything's kind of in space, yeah. you know. And then when you click it, it all kind of solidifies. So I think you start hearing it once you remove it. Right. It's it's less about what it does to one individual track and more about what it does to the collection of all of them together, sure. right? Yeah. It's like you hear it compacting all the sounds together. Right. Right. Okay, cool. All right. So now how about um let's talk about the business side of this for a minute. You haven't been doing this for twenty something years strictly as a hobby. You've been doing it for a living. <laughs> yeah. So what advice do you want to share with people about getting the business right so that you can stay in this and, and make a living out of it? Or is there a resource you want to hit People too, rock yeah, stars. Yeah, a couple of things. I, I like using um, QuickBooks, you know, I, and I only use it for invoicing. I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't put like put expenses in there and stuff like that. I just, I use it to keep track of who I'm paying. Is this the online, the online Quick, one? QuickBooks online. Yeah, I tried the, uh, I used to have the one on my computer for a while and then it wouldn't work anymore. And then I had to update it. I thought, you know what, let me just, let me just do the online thing. And, and it, it's been cool for now. Another bit of advice I would do is since, you know, we're self-employed and you got to pay taxes. You know, so my father was an accountant when he was alive. Um, he may still be one now. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he told me for years and I ignored it, but I finally did it. He And this is what I do. I have a separate savings account. And I um, whenever I get a check, I just immediately take 20% of it. It probably needs to be more, but I've gotten away with I take 20% of that check and throw it into that account and don't even touch it. Right. And that covers, hopefully, sometimes it doesn't because if you make more money one year, you owe money. But that covers your, you know, your estimated taxes. And, and that, and to me, it's like that account is sitting there. It doesn't exist. So right. it just, you know, cause you don't want to be stuck at the end of the year. Like, oh, I owe all this money. Where am I going to get it from? And it's like, boom, there it is. That's, that's kind of saved me a lot. It's just kind of have a, have that going and just. So you would receive a check. Now maybe you're doing sort of, maybe your checks are sort of uh, farther and fewer between if they're larger projects, but right. you would have a check. It would come in, you deposit it, and then you make a mental note to, oh, let me go do it when that clears, I'll go transfer some or, to or the other account. Or, or sometimes I'll, I'll have like my bank, I'll do a multi-deposit sometimes where it's like, you know, you can multi-deposit. Multi what's uh, what's that? I want one set in the voice of elf. Yeah. Multi-deposit. <laughs> you can do, um, well, this is exciting stuff. You get all the bank people excited. Uh, you, uh, you deposit into your main account, but you could say like, let's say you get a check for, I don't know, $5,000. How, how about a hundred dollars for easy math? dollars. Okay. Take, you know, your main, your main savings account or your checking account, whatever you use, uh, you know, 80 bucks goes to that. And then, and then you write out a separate deposit slip and say, oh, and, the, and, and in this account, can you, can you split this check and put 80 in this account and 20 in this now, account? Now, is that at the bank itself? I do that at the bank. Um, have you tried doing that kind of ninja technique from using the photo banking app you know, on I your phone or not? I haven't tried that yet. I, I know it's available and I just haven't tried it yet, but man. you might, you might be able to do the Dude, ninja. if you can do that, if that's true, you just, I'm going to come over there and hug you, man. Or if, I might even come hug you right now before I even find out if it's true. Or if you go, or, you know, or if you deposit into your checking account, just do that. And then when you go home, go to your online banking and just say like, oh, let me just take the 20 bucks out of there and chuck it into the, or yeah. if it's like $5,000, it's, a thousand dollars has to go, and it sucks at first because you're like, man, I, I can't. But you're gonna be so much happier. Once you get used to it. You get used to it. Like now, when I know, like when I get paid something, and like I don't think of it in terms of like that's my day rate. It's like that's a little less is my day rate because I have to put that aside to right. And so, rockstars, to clarify one other thing, if the tax rate is like actually twenty five percent or thirty percent or something, the reason why twenty percent would work is because 
you know, you, you're going to still end up with a bunch of deductions. Right. right. So it's not really going to be a full 25 or 30%. It's going to be something closer to that. Yeah. Cause my father makes sense. Take 33% and put it away and be like, oh, I can't. I, so I started doing like 20, but 20 knock on wood worked for me all the time. No, you were like, to be a smart ass, you were like, don't you mean 33 and a third, third percent? Yeah. <laughs> smart ass. <laughs> all right. So now how about an organizational tip or something online that you use for keeping your shit together while you're making records? All the I, time? I advocate something like, um, like backups, you know, like, um, synchronized pro X or something like that. You know, don't, I, I would spend the money and get a backup program. Don't, don't just start copying files over to another drive or don't just not back anything up. Um, something like synchronized pro X this cause I see it all the time. It's basically like, you know, you can back up to a separate drive and there was a setting in there. If you get the, there's two levels of it. If you get the higher one, there's a setting where you can uncheck it. So it does not delete anything that's not in the master. So I like doing that as an extra safety. Like maybe there was something that existed that is not on the master, but it's still on the safety. Let's just leave it on the safety kind of thing. Right. And, so to clarify, that yeah. means your backup drive will always be bigger than your master drive. Little bits. So yeah. It'll be bloated. Possibly, by the end. It could possibly be bigger. And then I do, if, if we can do it, I do a second backup. And then if I'm at a studio, I take one of the drives home with me every night, just in case there's a fire or. Okay. So a typical scenario, you're at the studio, you're working on the studio drives. Mm-hmm. You have your backup drive connected and Synchrony Pro X. So what was it called? Synchronized Pro X. Synchronized Pro X is running all day or it's like at the end of the day, you turn on Synchronized Pro X and it throws at, everything onto the backup. Yeah, at the end of the, the end of the day and you have to tell it like copy from here from this folder to this folder or whatever. And, and a lot of times, like if I'm working at sound Emporium, which is another place I love working, there is, um, Zach, they call him zip. He's a great assistant over there. He'll, he'll sometimes back up like after every couple songs, like if there's just a little bit of a lull, he'll go ahead and just, he'll just kind of back it up like after every song. Cause it doesn't take that long. And that way, you know, like if you lose something, you don't, does it. it back up to the two drives all at, uh, at just, once or just to one? And then uh, you got to you know, cut back that one up to the other. I, I'm not sure. I usually just do one and then I do the other. A lot of times on, on certain projects, there's only a safety and that's fine. But if it's something I'm fairly in charge of, like keeping track of like the drives and stuff, I'll go ahead and get two, two safeties just yeah. to, you, know. you just don't ever want to be in that position. No, where I, I don't know. You, if it was your Mas- answer is no. I'm sorry, we don't have it any longer. I think it was. Yeah, I think I, I don't know if it was George Massenberg or somebody that I think it was him that said, if you don't have it in three places, you don't have it. Right, right. You know, I've heard that a lot too. Yeah. All right, so now um, let's go into our last two hypothetical questions. This one is imagining yourself starting over again, kind of like you did when you came to Nashville. But if you had to do it today, or you're giving this advice to somebody else, mm. and you needed to have a simple setup to record with. You needed to find musicians. You didn't know anybody yet. You needed to find people to work with or record. And you needed to make some make ends meet at the beginning. What would, wow, what would you do? A good, that's a good. <laughs> Imagine you had to start all over. Well, you know, with the technology now, I guess you could, um, something like an Apollo would be a good situation, especially that Apollo 8, because there's four, because you have the built-in, you have like four built-in mic pre, so you don't have to carry around yeah. like a ton of stuff. You hear that Universal Audio? Apollo mentioned yet again on recording studio rock stars. <laughs> yet again. Um, so yeah, there, so that, and then, um, I don't know, four, four mics or so. And you'd have to have some sort of speakers, some powered speakers. Oh, just a cool thing about that Apollo. I can't, I, mean, I guess I'm doing a commercial for the Apollo here, um, but it's got like a volume knob on it. I mean, that's kind of handy. You'd have a laptop and I, yeah, where would I go to meet people? I guess you'd start to figure out like where the, where the clubs are and, and you know, any kind of like, if there's any kind of coffee shop, like, performance type things, you know, just kind of get a, try to get a handle on local musicians and artists and who needs what and that kind of thing. And for the job, man, I don't, 
I guess just kind of anything, right? I mean, it'd be cool if there was, if this hypothetical place had like a record store that had an opening. Right. Yeah. So you could go <laughs> you know, be around like, music all day. Yeah. You just be like, well, okay, maybe I can do that. You know? <laughs> well, implicit in what you said though, is don't assume that you're going to earn money from your recording right away. Right. That's right. So that's, that's kind of, that's the valuable takeaway right. from that. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Cause I mean, this, everybody's got different takes and that's what we love about sure. the recording studio rock stars is hearing people come in and one person says this, somebody else says this. And yeah. I leave it to you rock stars to unravel this mess. <laughs> um, but um, that's great, man. So, all right, well now how about a, uh, oh, and I'll, I'll throw this in too. So I have a new roommate here and he's, you know, he's taking advantage of this ride sharing stuff. So Uber is a kind of a opportunity. Oh, and, right, and Craig yeah. Alvin had talked about that on the yeah, show as a job know, opportunity. Yeah. I didn't, didn't even cross my mind. Cause you can just turn it on and you can say, I've got this window of time. I want to work. So just turn on your, turn on your love light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, work, it's up you know? to you just do that. And then, and then when you want to, you know, when you can afford to make music and can and have and need the, and you know, then you can stop and, and do yeah. that. That's no, that's a great idea. All right. So now last question, hypothetical, and, and then it's time for lunch. Um, this one is, we're going to take the studio way back machine. Okay. Um, who are those? What was it? Uh, um, Mr. Peabody. Yeah. Mr. Peabody. Thank you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I dating, knew you'd know. We're dating ourselves. We're dating ourselves. <laughs> uh, we are going to jump in the way, studio way back machine with Mr. Peabody and you're going to go back. People are going to have to look up. Find like, young what Joe is, Costa. What is Mr. Peabody? Yeah. You can look that up. Actually, they redid that as a movie not so oh, long ago. So uh, everybody's <laughs> like, what are you talking about, man? It was like a recent <laughs> Disney movie or whatever. Probably wasn't Disney. Um, go back and find young Joe Costa in Boston. Joe Costa in Boston. And uh, you're going to walk up, tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around, you're like, whoa. You look, yeah, the, the, you're me, but you look older or whatever. Isn't, you know? that, isn't, the, isn't it like the dimension supposed to explode if that happens? Or well, like that? it does, but not in Recording Studio Rockstar's okay. universe. Yeah, it's actually, it gets better. <laughs> the dimension improves. So then uh, you say, what are you doing here? He said, well, I've come to give you this one bit of advice, young, young sir. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a Recording Studio Rockstar yourself one day. What uh, would you tell yourself? I think um, maybe patience. Patience is a good, um, yeah, that's the thing about, and it's interesting. Yeah. If I'm walking around Boston, I'm the younger, my younger self. If any of you, you know, you that have been to Boston or live in Boston, you know, that people walk real fast and they don't look at each other and they're just like, ah, you know, just seem aggro. They might not be, but that, I mean, I just, that's why I was used to just looking down at the ground and walking quick, you know, fast. And, but I say patience because, you know, you start working with people and just because it's not your idea of the process does not mean it's not correct. And everyone has a way to get to where they're getting, you know, I've worked on projects where it's like people are starting to maybe want to do vocals like way ahead of when I think they should be doing it. Cause we don't even really have the track together and all that. But, but you know what, that might be a way of them to, to see if the track's even working or it might be, maybe they're just inspired to do it then who cares if we do it. You know, it's like over the years, I've just learned like, man, just let, like, don't try to interfere with like, keep open, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the worst thing that would happen about knowing it all and being right all the time is just be like, what else is there for me to learn? That's right. You know, you always learn something all like hopefully every day. Yeah. So it's nice to constantly be learning from people, especially when they do it different as a studio owner myself, when I have somebody else in the studio, I'm always thrilled that they won't do it the way I do it. Cause it's the number one best chance for me to learn a new great trick. And mm -hmm. then of course I steal it and use Absolutely. it for myself. Everyone, everyone. Yeah. It's like, you just sort of, you see what people do and go like, I never thought of that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars. Oh, Rockstars, thank you so much for listening through another long, awesome episode. <laughs> 
with a super cool dude. Thanks um, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you, dude. I yeah. let the rock stars know how they can learn more about you. How can they follow you? Where are they going to go check out all your great work? Oh, uh, Instagram, which I probably need to be on more. I believe it's at Costa 71, I think. You may have to post that. I always have to keep looking and see what my thing is. And then I do have a Facebook page, uh, Joe Costa Engineer Mixer. I think if you just do a search for that, I've got some some stuff up on there and that's about it. All right, cool, man. Well, dude, again, a pleasure. Yeah, I think it's a good time to go get some lunch and look forward to seeing you more around the studio. Yeah, man. Great, All right. great times. <laughs> Cheers. Yep. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's R.S. Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.